when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. Our summer is sadly almost over, so this is the last of our special episodes speaking to interesting political figures who will be shaping the political weather for the rest of the year. My guest this week is Peter Mandelson, or Lord Mandelson to be precise. He first came to prominence in the mid-1980s when Neil Kinnock appointed him Director of Communications for the Labour Party. He made his mark as a spin doctor and soon became known as the Prince of Darkness. He entered Parliament in 1992 as the MP for Hartlepool and became close to Tony Blair as he rose to power. There were two initial spells in the cabinet as Trade and Industry Secretary and Northern Ireland Secretary. He then went to Brussels as a European Commissioner for Trade before returning to Britain, the House of Lords and the cabinet to try and save his old comrade Gordon Brown. After Labour lost the 2010 election, he's continued to be an influential voice on British politics, particularly on Brexit. So Peter, thank you very much for finding time to speak to the FT. For the MPs I've spoken to this summer so far, I've asked them what they do over recess, but there isn't really a recess for peers or people in the consultancy world. Well, I'll tell you world. what I do. I listen to the FT podcast. I've like been, all good people. I have been listening to it faithfully, walking the dogs across Pusey Vale in Wiltshire up onto the Downs. This is where you have a farm. It's where I rent a farm cottage, not a farm. <laughs> Big difference. But I love the podcast, so I hope you're going to stay. <laughs> well, we'll back to our usual discussion of things when we get back to the political season next week. But what have you been keeping your eye on politically this summer? Because there's been a couple of things going on, a lot in the Labour Party, not a lot on Brexit. So for your day-to-day lives, obviously the House of Lords isn't sitting, so you're just more observing things for the moment. No, I've been very engaged in Brexit. I hate it. I hate what it's going to do to the country. I hate what it's going to do to young people in particular. And if we can ideally derail it, but if not send it in a less damaging destructive direction. That's what I want to do. But my main focus on it is campaigning for people's vote. I think the public are entitled to a say on the final negotiated outcome of this whole ghastly, messy process. And that's what I support. So let's go back. You are involved with the Britain Strong Renewable campaign, which was the official in-campaign during the referendum. In the 2016. That's right, which then morphed into the Open Britain campaign, which has now morphed into the People's Vote campaign. How optimistic are you, realistically, about getting this vote? Because we're recording this on the day where there's been positive signs from the French president about getting some kind of deal. And if we do get a deal, it makes stopping Brexit a lot harder. Yeah, but look at what the French president has said and look at what Michel Barnier had said. Uh, both of them want a deal. 
Europe very strongly wants a deal. It wants Business a wants a deal. Strong, robust future relationship between the EU and the UK. I know that very well from all my former colleagues and friends I still have across the European Union. But it has to be a deal that fits into the rules of the European Union. And it's that last bit that people in Britain tend to overlook. Let's just take a step back from today's news and look at what's happening in Brexit overall. Essentially, a vast credibility gap is opening up around Brexit. And I think this credibility gap will be driving public opinion when people refocus on the issues when... Credibility uh, of who in that gap? Oh, the credibility gap between what was originally promised and advertised in 2016, what is happening now, uh, what the Prime Minister is going to deliver. Look, no one in 2016 at the time of the referendum said that the negotiations would be such a mess as they have been. No one said we'd be stockpiling food and medicines. No one said that prices in the shops would rise. No one said that nurses and doctors would leave. No one said that we couldn't keep on trading as we are now. And certainly no one said we'd be following EU rules in the future without any say in their making. So people, I think, increasingly are seeing all this in the country. I don't think they are resigned. People are resigned to some disruption there. I think they are not resigned to Brexit on any terms at at any cost. And I think at the moment, my reading of public opinion, and I've looked at all the polls during the summer and we've done focus groups across the country as well, people are essentially, in a sense, keeping their powder dry. They're sitting on the fence, they're saying, well, Mrs May is trying her best, but it's not turning out as promised. We will bide our time. But one thing we're not going to do is swallow any old outcome when it's laid in front of us. We want to make a judgment about it, and a judgment we will. Now, what I'm arguing, and my colleagues in the People's Vote campaign are doing, is saying, fine, it's all one thing for the public to want to express a view, but they have to have a means, an instrument to do so, and that's where a People's Vote comes in. So there's two challenges for people's vote. The first of all is that you talk about public opinion. The fundamentals have not changed a huge amount since 2016. That when you look at... Oh, I think they have. What are the numbers that have changed? Well, in public opinion, you're seeing a very clear drift of public opinion. A drift, a w- but not a landslide. It's not a landslide. Like it. No, no, it's a drift because people are biding their time. I mean... Until, they, they until are, they see a deal? Well, they've cut Mrs May some slack. They've said, right, you've set out what you want to do. Go out and do it. Bring back the goods and we'll inspect them in the autumn. I mean, that's the deadline that she's spoken about. So people are not going to spend every waking moment of every day thinking about and fretting over Brexit. They're going to say, right, let the government get on with it. Carry on the negotiation. Come back when you're ready and we'll make a judgment. But I think that... What people are aware of, without understanding the detail and every layer of it, they are aware that Mrs May's Brexit strategy has changed since Chequers. Essentially, in my view, what she wants to do is to take Britain out of the European Union with a blindfold over our eyes. None of the hard decisions are actually made until... She wants to keep kicking the can down the road. And I think people are aware of this. I think that they are increasingly expecting something which is going to be very fudged, not clear at all. There will be an argument made by many 
that the Prime Minister is simply not being honest with people, then she's not coming clean, that what she wants to do is to shroud the whole future relationship between Britain and the European Union in ambiguity, in an attempt to hide this sort of looming gap between Brexit as promised, which was taking back control, and Brexit as it's going to be delivered, which is essentially being governed by a common rule book, which, as we know, will be a Brussels. This uh, actually gives you quite a lot of common cause with the most hardline Brexiters. You know, the arguments you just made there are the same things if I was sitting opposite Ian Duncan Smith right now. Yeah, I think that Brexiters and Remainers will be joined in demanding clarity and honesty from the government. And although they disagree fundamentally on the core issue of whether we should be in the European Union or not, what I think that both sides of this argument will be demanding is clear knowledge of the deal that is being negotiated and what it means for our country, not simply our economy, our trade and jobs, uh, but how we're going to be governed in the future. You see, what I think that Mrs May is doing is I think she has every intention of making a withdrawal agreement. which It's is, 80% of the way there, based well, on what's been done it, so it, far. It has a rather important Irish uh, border question right. <laughs> and a backstop. But the uh, assumption to, to Westminster is that the UK will have to accept the EU proposal. You know, from what I hear in Brussels, there is no way they will sign any agreement that does not have the Irish backstop in. So the this UK... is absolutely clear. There's no question about it. But in my view, they will reach some sort of mutual accommodation on the Irish backstop. I mean, at the moment, the issue is not whether you should have no hard border, a completely open border, frictionless trade carrying on between the two parts of Ireland. No question about that. The British government accepts that. That's what the EU is insisting on. The argument about the Irish border is about the geographical and regulatory scope of the backstop that's being negotiated. Essentially, the EU geographically wants it to be narrow and to apply to Northern Ireland alone. Not the UK the wants Britain. it to be the whole of the UK. The, UK. the British government wants it to be the whole of the UK. In regulatory terms, the EU wants it to be as wide as possible in regulatory terms, and the British government wants it to be as narrow as they can get away with. So in those two positions, you have room for manoeuvre. But let's be absolutely clear about this. Like everything else in this negotiation, that issue too will be settled on terms set out by the European Union, not by the British government. Going back to your point about people's votes, so you say public opinion is moving in this direction. I'm not sure I would agree with that. I'd say it is gradually moving, but the fundamentals are still people just about support leaving the EU, and most people want the government to get on with it. But the second issue with the people's vote is that you touched on is that you do run into this danger of essentially saying to people, you didn't know what you were voting for, you don't understand how complex this is, you need to think again. I'm not saying that. The public themselves are saying that. You go to every single opinion poll, you know, look through you know, the glass window of every focus group and you will hear every single person saying, I never realised it would be such a mess. I never realised it would be so complicated. I never thought that it would take so long. And I never thought most importantly of all, that to all intents and purposes, we would be leaving the European Union, but not actually checking out of the European Union. And this is the nub of the issue, Sebastian, in my view. And I think it goes to the heart 
of what Mrs. May is doing. She wants to hide all this ambiguity. As I said, by making a withdrawal agreement, which is clear, expensive, and binding, but then putting the future trade relationship into a vague political statement that will be agreed by the British government and the EU, the true implications of which will only become clear after March 2019. You know, she knows fully well that there's a chasm between what was promised and what is being delivered. This credibility gap that I've described to you between what people expected, which was to take back control, but in effect to find ourselves in some sort of spatchcocked arrangement a la checkers, in which we are half in and half out of the economic structures of the European Union, governed by their rules in the trade of all our industrial, manufactured and agricultural goods, but without a say in how those rules are drawn up. Now, that is absolutely not what people were promised at the time of the referendum. We would, as I say, be checking out of the European Union, but to all intents and purposes, not leaving it. Now, this is a huge promise gap opening up around Mrs May's Brexit strategy. I don't think the public has woken up to it, by the way. Yes, so I was going but, to you, why but, but, isn't there a big but, landslide for your position? Because then? people are giving her the benefit of the doubt. In effect, the public have tuned out of Brexit. I'm not saying they're resigned to it. I don't believe they are. But they've certainly tuned out of it because they've got other things going on in their lives. But when they see what is being proposed, I think many people will question whether this really is a fitting and appropriate status for a country like Britain to have. And final question on Brexit before we move on to something else. How are you going to make this happen? So you've laid out the argument you put in front of the British people, but what's the mechanism of getting that people's vote? Because you've got to have Parliament to It has vote. to come from Parliament. I don't believe that Parliament are going to stand for this. This putting a blindfold of across the face of the British nation and saying, trust us, we're going to leave the European Union. We know roughly what's going to happen afterwards, but we don't want to reveal it at this stage because we don't think you'll like it. And that's again, Remainers and Brexiters will agree on that, I think. And I think they will come together in Parliament and vote down Mrs May's tactics in this. Now, I may but be how wrong. Does that I may be wrong. I mean, Parliament may just wish to bury its head in the ground like ostriches and hope for a better life, you know, sometime in the future. But I don't think that's where politics is in Britain. I don't think that's where Parliament will be. And I don't see any circumstances in which the Labour Party will support the government in such a, well, I would call it a deceit which has been practised by the government. And I think that without the support either of her Brexiter a European reform group led by Jacob Rees-Mogg and without the support of the Labour Party, I think she's going to be in trouble. So that's again back to my question, how does a second referendum happen? Who is going to start advocating that? So Parliament and how do you get that well, through Parliament? There are many parliamentarians who are already advocating it. But Parliament then has to decide what the way out of this situation is. Could I mean, be a no-deal Brexit. It could be, but I think it's extremely unlikely that there will ever be anything like a majority in the House of Commons, or the Lords for that matter, for a no-deal Brexit. I mean, that is really like deciding to throw yourself over the precipice and into the abyss. What I would like to see is people given a choice, essentially between the best that Mrs May can offer, with all its compromises, 
and all its what will be seen by many people as fatal qualifications, the alternative to staying in the European Union. And for once at long last, unlike in 2016 in the original referendum, people would actually be able to compare the two, being in the European Union as is, or being clearly out of it with all its compromises, all its downsides, as well as in the view of some, its upsides as well. Let people make an honest, clear examination of the alternatives, make a choice, vote on it, and decide definitively, and it would be definitive, if people but decided... Some people would say people 2016 decided, was definitive. If people, But it was definitive without people knowing what the choice was, what the alternative was. It was definitive with people being told that they could have exactly the same trade benefits as they have now. All the reality of Brexit couldn't possibly have been seen because it didn't exist in 2016. We hadn't yet done it. Now we are very close to the finishing line, People will be able to focus on it, assemble their views, make a judgment, and Parliament's job, in my view, is to give people the chance to vote on it. We'll park Brexit for a moment. I just want to talk about Peter Mandelson. When you look back on your quite long and varied political career, what's the thing you're most proud of that you did? Oh, um, helping Neil Kinnock save the Labour Party in the 1980s, helping Tony Blair and others reform it and create new Labour in the 1990s and ushering in with huge majorities a radical reforming Labour government for 13 years. And the role I played in that in the 80s and the 90s and after is what I'm most proud of. Do you regret when you came back in 2008 because you were, as I said, a European Commissioner for Trade? I think it quite surprised people when Gordon Brown announced it. It only surprised me. (laughs) Was it a call out of the blue when Gordon got in touch? Totally out of the blue. And what was the reason you decided to make your third comeback? When I walked into his room, it was, I thought, to be briefed about and to talk about the looming banking crisis and the need to recapitalise the banks, which the government was going to undertake the following weekend. I saw him on a Thursday. He set out all this for me and said, but here's the thing. I don't want to do this without you. I think you have a role to play. It's battle stations. We're going to form a National Economic Council. I want you to take charge of all our response and what we're going to do on the business, economic and skills and science. We're going to throw everything we have at this and I want you to help deliver it. What can you do? Walk away and say, no, of course I could. When you look back at that... I wasn't very happy about coming back from Brussels because I was enjoying my job, to be honest, and I still had important things that I wanted to do, not just with the World Trade Round, certain bilateral negotiations, but also I was negotiating whole new economic partnership agreements between the different regional groupings in Africa and the European Union. But when... Your own country's prime minister says to you at a time of need, you've got to do a job. You do the job. When you look back on those days, you obviously stopped David Cameron from winning that election that everyone expected the Conservatives to enter back into power. They didn't in 2010. What was the reason that you think, you know, I don't think many people expected Gordon Brown to win that election. Labour had been in power for 13 years and those final days. We could have won it. How could you have won it? Well, we could have won it by being much clearer about our new Labour philosophy standing and what we were going to do next. My whole approach in that final period, in the run-up to the election, was that we have got to be a government of change. 
which is hard when you've been in power for so long. Of course it's hard and of course it's challenging, but we could have done it. But it needed, right across the spectrum of policy, we needed new ideas, new approaches. We had to, in a sense, adapt new labour to a new generational age. I mean, we are now fully and firmly entered the 21st century. When we were designing new labour, it was in the 1990s. Of course, things had to change. And I wanted the whole party and the government to be galvanised to draw up the new ideas, new blueprints and strategies that would take us forward. And I think that if we had done that with a distinctive, radical cutting edge for the new Labour government, we could have won it. We should have done. But I'm afraid, instead, there was just a lack of focus. And I regretted it. It was partly because events were consuming us to such a great extent. But that's no excuse. We could and should have prepared for change. How much was that down to Gordon himself? If David Miliband had gone over the top and challenged Gordon for the leadership, which many expected, do you think he could have won that election? The most difficult thing in the world for Gordon to have done would be to have said, I've in effect won the war. I mean, the global financial crisis, the disintegration of balance sheets of some of our key banks, the whole recapitalization. Heaven knows, he not only saved the UK economy, but he gave a very powerful lead to the rest of the world. Now we need somebody new for the peace. Rather as Churchill in 1945, he won the war, but now the time was for somebody else to organise and win the peace. And if he had at that stage handed over to a younger person, who had credibility, and I think the then Foreign Secretary David Miliband did have that credibility and he did have that appeal and authority, I have no doubt that we would have won it. Cameron and Osborne, they were attempting a good try at overhauling their party and modernising it, certainly changing the way many people saw it, but people didn't really feel that that process was thorough or completed. And there was something about the two of them that didn't quite, bring true for the British public. There was a sort of toffs, that sort of feel about them, not quite in sync with the British nation as a whole. That's why I think they denied Cameron the majority that he wanted in 2010. So you've talked about a lot of the things New Labour got right. What did it get wrong? Well, first of all, I've told you what it got wrong. It got wrong a failure to renew itself towards the end of the government. And that's absolutely fundamental. And then after we lost the election and Ed Miliband took over, all the sort of new Labour thinkers and drivers and leaders and people who had shaped and framed the whole thing initially basically sat out. And we said, OK, well, you know, the party's chosen Ed Miliband. He has a different view, different perspective. It's only fair to let him get on with it. Well, what he got on with doing was completely delegitimising New Labour, what we had done in government, and indeed what successive moderate centre-left Labour governments had done since the war, and said that we need a totally radical root and branch shake-up of everything that we stand for or want to do. At which point, silence. At which point, nothing replaced New Labour. At which point, the public didn't know what instead 
they were voting for on what they could expect from an Ed Miliband-led Labour Party. And that's the basis on which we went into the 2015 election with the inevitable result. Well, this nicely brings us on to the other big topic, which I'm sure has been occupying this summer. We know it has because, as the Financial Times reported this week, you've been having a couple of barbecues this summer to talk about <laughs> the future of the Labour Party. There's actually one barbecue, but, you know, I'm not that social a person. But it was a good barbecue. What sort of things do you serve at your barbecue? Uh, sort of barbecue-type meat. Burgers, sausages? Burgers. Yes. <laughs> Vegetables, salad. Well, you did achieve something, which was to close the long-standing TBGB fight in Tom Watson with somebody who is the And that was reported. important to do, by the way, partly in itself, but also to recognise that you know Tom Watson's come quite a way since he was doing my photocopying in the campaign department in Woolworth Road in the 1980s. He's added thinking, ideas, maturity, and I think insight, broadly speaking, at the same time as he's lost so much weight. Let's talk about where the Labour Party's at now, because you talked about those fights that you had in the 1980s, which was, of course, the time of the Trotskyist entryism into Labour and the rise of the militant faction, which Neil Kinnock had to deal with. And those are very much your grounding, your political days. And the more that we see of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, the more it feels like we've gone back to those days. And there is a strong argument to say that that side of Labour has much greater control over all the levers of power than Labour than it ever did in the 1980s. So where does that leave people of your tradition in the Labour Party? Well, that's true, but something also has happened, and that is bringing into the Labour Party tens and tens of thousands of a lot of young people who would not otherwise have been engaged in politics, who wouldn't have seen themselves members of a political party, and I welcome them. The problem is that we've got a sort of new grassroots movement of young people, many idealistic, many very committed to radical change in this country, of the sort that the centre-left tradition in British politics and the Labour Party has always stood for. But on top of that, a very different bunch of people who are older, they're essentially retreads from the 80s and the 90s, from Labour's sort of hard left, far left past, who want to control, who want to manipulate the Labour Party and effectively drive out that centre-left tradition from our ranks. So you've got two very different things happening under Corbyn. The new influx of bright, enthusiastic, idealistic young people who I welcome, but the reimposition or reintroduction of control of the Labour Party, I say reintroduction because they never actually succeeded in getting control, but they certainly attempted to do so in the 70s and 80s, and under Tony Benn came very, very near to doing so, which is, I think, quite antipathetic to what these new young members believe in, what their political outlook is, and what they want to see from the Labour Party. And I think this is very true. And when you go to Labour conference, you can actually see that split. Someone's described this as the Leninists versus the Lenonists. So you've got the old hard left faction who have come in. and I Lenin and Lenon. As in John Lennon, yeah. as in those who want to change the world and imagine a better future. But those younger people are totally devoted to Jeremy Corbyn and his agenda of change. You've spoken out against it. It's not one that you politically like. And he doesn't seem to be going anywhere. So why stick around? I tell you my main problem with Jeremy Corbyn, one of them, is that I'm not sure what the plan is at all. I'm not sure what his agenda is. 
It's quite clear at the manifesto it, in last it, year's election. Is, is it really clear? I Raising mean, taxes, mass nationalisation. Yeah, of course, of course, but that's not a sort of that's not a way to bring about radical change in our country. That's just a, a set of policies that will substitute private monopoly control for state monopoly control and probably not improve the service or lower or reduce fares or prices in the process and get people, including many working people, paying more taxes to pay for it. Now, I don't know where Jeremy Corbyn's going. I don't know what his strategy is. You've got the worst Tory government of any of our lifetimes and yet you have both the Labour Party and its leader behind in the opinion polls. Surely alarm bells should be starting to ring in the minds of all his supporters, all the core ministers. I mean, how are we going to change this situation? How are we going to raise our game? How are we going to get ahead? How are we going to get into a position where we are going to win the next general election? These are the sort of hard questions that a party of potential government needs to answer rather than a party of protest and opposition. Well, the answer to that increasingly seems to be some kind of breakaway party. The sense that that centre-left and the social democratic tradition within the Labour Party, which you belong to, no longer is welcome, no longer has a home. The, you know, Blairite has become a dirty swear word within the Labour Party these days. And there's been increasing talks and reports that a breakaway is going to happen. Do you think it's inevitable? No, I don't. What is clear is that Jeremy and many of his team and key union supporters, like Len McCluskey of Unite and Dave Ward of the Communication Workers, they have made it absolutely clear that they have little or no time for the centre-left tradition in our party or anyone representing it. I find this wrong. I find it offensive. I mean, throughout our history, it has been moderate-led, centre-left governments that have delivered radical change in our country to redistribute power, wealth and opportunity to people, starting with the government of Attlee, Morrison, Bevin and Bevan after the Second World War, including my own grandfather. Now, where do these people think that the National Health Service came from? except from a moderate-led centre-left government? Where do they think that universal education in our country, modern hospitals, schools and universities, the welfare system, help for the working poor, a fresh start in life for the under-fives and all the reforms that have made a civilised, tolerant and more equal society, where do they think all this has come from? It came not from socialist sellouts, as they would like to portray everyone who's led the Labour Party or played a part in Labour government since the Second World War, but from effective, hard-working, radical, reforming Labour governments. Yet all these achievements have been swept aside. Actually, it started, as I've said, with Ed Miliband and his leadership, and now with knobs on under Jeremy Corbyn. And I really don't think that they are going to create a viable electoral force that is going to attract voters across cities and towns and rural areas and suburbs across our country with this sort of sectarian approach and one that attempts to bury every achievement of every past Labour government we've seen since the Second World War. But everything we've seen from Mr Corbyn's leadership over the past two years suggests that's exactly what he is doing and will continue to do. He has his worldview, his perspective, and is very keen to drive those people out of the Labour Party. So if he doesn't listen to you and doesn't change his perspective, where does that leave people with your political views? Well, it certainly leaves us 
with a leader who's failing to make the political weather, who's not moving the dial, and is frankly letting the party down. I mean, that is almost the nicest thing I could say about him. Look, what most of his party critics simply want is Labour to do better. They want it to succeed, to get into government, to start making a difference again. That's what we want to see from the Labour Party. And rather than see a new party created, I would like to see a new politics created. I would like to see the Labour Party being an effective vehicle for the creation of that new politics. Let's be absolutely clear about this. While it is true that in Britain we now have essentially two narrow streams of ideological opinion dominant in both our main political parties, from the nationalist right in the Conservatives and from the hard left in Labour. And that is a particular feature of British politics at the moment. But politics as a whole is not working very well right across the West, in the United States as well as in Europe. There's a huge disconnect which has opened up between the public and their political parties and the political system. Now, that's a very keen reflection of political systems that are showing great strains and possibly are effectively broken across the West. So it's not just a British phenomenon. Politics as a whole is not working. People are being presented with a choice between right-wing and left-wing populism and nationalism. They're not being offered a choice between different workable policy solutions. We know what populism is. It's a device for dividing people. And you're seeing it both in the Conservative Party and now in the Corbyn-led Labour Party. I don't think that's what the British public want to vote for. That's not what they expect. They want something different. So you're attached to a new style of politics, something that's much more around the centre ground. Why do you remain so attached to achieving that through the Labour Party? Well, in the Labour Party, it's a centre-left, Sebastian. I'm not a centrist. I'm not just a moderate. I'm a moderate centre left winger. That's why I'm in the Labour Party. But what we've got to understand and come to terms with is that the old ideological dividing line between capital and labour, which is essentially the prism, the lens through the left and right, through which, frankly, the Labour leadership still seems politics. That's an old ideological dividing line which is less relevant now. There's been a rotation of the political axis. Politics now revolves around more between open and closed outlooks and values, between nationalism and internationalism, between open economies and closed protected economies, and also between socially conservative attitudes to society and socially liberal ones. Now, those are the key dividing values, if you like, and rival competing outlooks in politics across the West now, much less the old-fashioned capital versus labour ideological dividing line. And unless and until the Labour Party comes to terms with that, embraces it, understands it, absorbs it, and responds to it, and gives people a choice of policies, a leadership, and an outlook that they can understand, they want to vote for, whether they live in the cities all the towns 
Those in cities who have seen many of the benefits of globalisation coming their way, whereas in many towns, like the town I used to represent in the northeast of England, in Hartlepool, they see globalisation as a phenomenon whose benefits are in so many ways just passing them by. And of course, the referendum in 2016 was a very strong cry or demand from those people to be listened to and to have politics respond to them. It wasn't actually, for very many people, a vote to lead the European Union as much as it was a demand to be listened to and to have politicians heed their needs and their demands and what they want out of this new economy, this new society and this new borderless world that is emerging in the 21st century. And unless and until we can respond to that properly with workable, practical, radical policies, then we are going to be of insufficient relevance and use to most people in this country. A couple of quick fire questions before we finish. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn will be leading the Labour Party into the next general election? Probably. Do you think he will be challenged as leader of the Labour Party for the next election? Probably not, but I think that depends on how the anti-Semitism argument unfolds in the coming months. Do you think Brexit could I mean, ever let me be, be clear about anti-Semitism. Up until now, it's actually been about others in the party albeit his failure to do anything about them, what it's become now is more about him and his comments about British Zionists not understanding English irony. Now that, for many people, crosses a line. It, in effect, separates out Jews. It makes them distinct or different from the rest of us. It stigmatises Jewish people, and that's why it's totally unacceptable. Now, he's got to deal with this, and deal with it fast, if this issue was going to be put to bed. If you were advising Jeremy Corbyn, what would you tell him to say? Oh, I think we've gone beyond the international definition of anti-Semitism. That should never have arisen, of course. It should be entirely embraced. But he's now got to come to terms with and speak honestly about his own views. And that's what he's got to do in the coming weeks. And back to my quick fire. Do you think Brexit could ever be a success? I don't believe it can be an unalloyed success but there are ways to mitigate its harm and damaging consequences, but they will involve massive compromises, which I'm not entirely sure the British people are ready to take. Would you ever return to frontline politics? Only if asked. And finally, do you think Tony Blair was proven right when he said his mission will be complete when the Labour Party has learned to love Peter Mandelson? Tony Blair, by and large, is right about it. And that's it for this special episode of FT Politics. Peter, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. We'll be back next week for our usual episode of the podcast. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thank you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 
Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.